Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of P&L. Um, before we get to this week's guest, listeners will be delighted to hear, to the sound of groans, no doubt, that I've got two of my favourite objects of derision to uh, target this week in terms of the fix and last look. Um, so those of you that don't want to listen, you can skip forward to about another 15 minutes. Where do we start? Well, um, I think the the big factor in the market at the moment is when I was talking to people last week, which is probably 10 days previous to most people who listen to this podcast, there was a sense that markets were settling down and that this was maybe an indication that liquidity was coming back to the market. I kind of feel that this week what we've seen is a few more moves coming back into the market, particularly in things like Aussie and Sterling, so those peripheral G5 currencies. Um, we're seeing some big moves on some pretty small amounts. And I think that kind of illustrates that the problem is still not going away. Interestingly, one side effect of this has been um, a few people talking to me about whether peer-to-peer would work in this environment. Now, obviously, I'm no real fan of the peer-to-peer model. Um, I still believe that you know timed executions can work, but there's going to be too often when people will, will not want a timed execution or will not be patient for a match because one thing that model does require is patience now in the current environment interestingly you could argue that patience will pay off because i think what we're seeing is is the market just bubbling along not doing very much with you know volumes probably lower than average but then the minute some orders hit the market or a news item hits the market we suddenly get a surge in volumes and an outsized move now what this means is that the peer-to-peer proponent is going to be sitting there exhibiting patience and hoping that nothing comes out on the newswise. That's a random walk. They may wish to do that because you know, what you can say is that if they do find a match, then that would be flow taken out of the market. Now, what we're talking about here, obviously, is like a fix type model, but with an important difference. There's no sort of specific window or benchmark for them to, to match out beyond the mid-rate. Um, so... In what is a late addition to this podcast, you'll never know it, um, honestly, <clears throat> the um, FT, the Financial Times this morning, published an article stating that uh, you know, there's fears around manipulation around the fix. Now, obviously, the first thought of a lot of us is going to be like, welcome to the party. You know, we sort of were welcomed by the host of this particular party over a decade ago. We all know there's a problem with the fix. Um, the problem is, I think there's a lack of understanding still. The issue with the fix, to my mind, is not one of people using the information illegally um, and not using it to manipulate the market. Is the fix being manipulated? Absolutely. I've been arguing this case for I don't know how many years. So absolutely it is. And it's especially the case since we had the new um, framework put in place in 2016, I'm going to guess. I think it might be late 2015. Um, the problem is that what we have is signaling risk 101 because the clients are using a dumb TWAB that replicates WM, fine, but that tells everyone what's going on, what's going to happen for the next five minutes. It's interesting, you know, people said, well, why is there a reversion in the last minute and a half of the fix normally? Well, that's because everybody that sees the TWAPs come in or has a very good idea which way the fix is going to be anyway due to some analysis that can be done by anybody with the right data, um, they can preempt the fix. And as they come to the end of the fix, what do they do? They take their profit. Um, I think it was on Wednesday of last week 
Sterling and Aussie both moved 15 pips in the five-minute window. Directional, it was a directional move. I mean, there was a lot more up and down in between. But that's fairly serious slippage, and that is basically down to signaling risk. So the problem is not so much one of illegal manipulation. The problem is one of legal manipulation because people are effectively taking publicly available data and they're using it to position themselves. What do we do to stop this? Well, <laughs> quite frankly, I think, you know, there's not much we can do. What I would say, though, is something I've argued before, and I sense there are more people trying to come around to this solution, is that I think what we come into is we lengthen the window. You know, it is a tricky balance because the fix does allow us to net decent amounts of flows out of the market. But the problem is the residue is always going to be exposed within that five-minute window. And everybody knows that. So if we make the window longer, perhaps, and I say perhaps, it depends on how much longer we make it, I'm, I'm increasingly coming around to the idea of, you know, let's, let's make this sort of, you know, hours long, quite frankly, um, so that everybody can, you know, get their business done and we get a fair benchmark for everybody. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think the longer window is, is the only place we can really go. So that problem dealt with, he said. Let's have a look at um, another aspect of liquidity. So regular listeners will know, and regular is my column will know, I am no fan of last look. Now, I do understand that you know there are sometimes circumstances in which last look can help somebody from a business disaster, i.e. if the you know if their technology suddenly goes wrong, um, you know their credit engine breaks down. I get it. However, what I've been told <clears throat> by several participants over the last week now, particularly um, since this, I guess, second wave of volatility came to us in late March, is that there are several LPs playing around with their last look times, i.e. they're lengthening them again. They maybe went down to 25 milliseconds, in some cases five. Generally speaking, this is what I'm told. It's people who rarely went below 25 milliseconds. They're now going out to the maximum they're allowed. Now, interestingly, they're also doing it on some of their own platforms. So what we're seeing is exactly what I was worried about in November and December when I wrote and spoke on the podcast with Galen quite frequently about you've got firms out there, and this was the head of the Global Foreign Exchange Committee meeting, and the GFXE does appear to have this on its agenda, which I think is good, which is what we're getting now is like a, a reinforcement of why we need that. These firms are not streaming executable liquidity. They're fishing for orders. And that is why I hate last look because it's cherry-picking flow. And in the current in, in, in market environment, I would argue it makes market conditions even worse. And this is assuming, of course, that none of these so-called LPs are actually, that, that they're not using the information, which they're not allowed to do. We all know that. But this is my concern, is that when you go further down the ladder, then there's the opportunity for LPs to behave, and I, I use the word LPs, inadvisedly there because I don't believe they are um, if you for these LPs to effectively abuse last look and use this information because you know who's checking some minor LP on a minor platform it's it's a matter of trust and I, I'm not sure the track the trust actually gets solved um, how do we solve this problem well <laughs> it's an age-old problem I guess in many ways but what we should have is LPs quoting the market 
not quoting some random computer-generated number that they don't mind quoting. So I don't mind. I'll put any price out there because guess what? I don't have to stand behind it. If we had to make people stand behind their prices, then they'd be a lot, lot more careful about how they would price. So to my mind, it should be about quoting wider, not quoting tighter and rejecting more. We've got people out there, and I've had people talk to me over the last 10, 20 days maybe, and they're talking in excess of 20% reject rates through various channels. That's way too many, even in these current conditions. And to be fair, you can quote as tight as you like in these markets, but if the market moves, you know, how are you really going to get out of it anyway? Even if you know, You're going to end up rejecting even wider spreads. And that becomes a real problem. It's not only then you've got people quoting wider, but they're also still using last look. We need to kind of settle on one model or the other, to my mind. So I think, how do we solve this problem? Well, it's only when we start quoting what the market should be, i.e. in current conditions a lot wider. And it's when clients actually start doing something about the channels that give them these 20% plus reject rates. Don't just moan about it. Actually do something about it. Go to a firm venue or go to a venue that gives you what you consider to be respectable reject rates. Again, I get that there may be some rejects out there that we can't do anything about, and that's fine. You know, credit, risk, latency, extreme latency. Um, that's fine. I, I get it. But let these clients just stop whinging about the fact that they're getting these reject rates and do something about it by going to a different channel or different LP that can demonstrate to them um, a much better reject rate. Now, equally, I think the industry needs to have a very good look at those firms that are happy to have those reject rates, especially this time when, you know, missing a trade could be 20, 30 points in terms of slippage. What are these firms trying to achieve? And are they really helping the market? I reckon they're latency arbitraging or machine gunning. I don't think we need either of those things very much. You can actually tell your story walking as far as I'm concerned. In a, in, in a pure market, I, I would argue that reject rate should be sub 1%. Now, there's always going to be a few more than that because, quite frankly, there's people that are going to behave, you know, in what they consider to be fair, but what the LP considers to be very unfair. That's what happens. Um, so maybe we give them, we do allow them a couple of points slippage. But I look at it and, and say to myself, if the liquidity consumer is executing in an appropriate fashion, in a fair fashion, they can still get multiple quotes, they can still aggregate liquidity, but they execute in a fair fashion. If they are doing that, and LPs are quoting the market, not a random number that they're not willing to stand behind, then we would have a much cleaner market for everybody. So that's the fix and last look taken care of. Thank you very much. You can send the checks to the usual address. Um, the other thing I wanted to just briefly talk about, and this is when we'll get to my guest, um, is market lockdowns and what it means sort of for currencies as we come out of the market lockdown. Because it strikes me that everybody's going to be Come, you know, there's a lot of countries coming out. New Zealand's talking about coming out of lockdown. Germany's starting it. Um, Denmark is starting it. Sweden's never been there. Uh, the US is probably looking at the creep of coronavirus across the continent. There is probably still going to go through a much longer period, if indeed they even do get to a lockdown in some of these states. 
Um, so we're going to have a multi-layered uh, exit from from economic lockdown. So how does this sort of, I, I kind of look at it, we live in a risk-on, risk-off world, and this is what's causing a lot of these moves. Yeah, risk-off, bang, sterling and Aussie. And we're going to come to that in just a second. Um, but risk-on, risk-off, does that work in a in a world where you've got different economies coming out of lockdown at different times? I'm not sure. It's something, we'll be, it's something that uh, will be interesting to see. Anyway, um, we'll be back in just a second with this week's guest. And funnily enough, the subject is risk on and risk off, but um, with FX as an asset class as a sub-theme. Profit and Loss is moving industry conferences online. Instead of traveling to London, Frankfurt, or New York, visit profit-loss.com slash events and register for our new dial-in day online conferences. You can also email info at profit-loss.com for sponsorship opportunities. So I'm joined by Steve Englander, Head of Global G10 FX Research and North American Macro Strategy at Standard Charter Bank, um, on the back of a paper that um, he recently put out with his colleagues on um, Risk On and Risk Off. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Always a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Last week, as we are talking, you published um, some research which fascinated me, particularly in the current environment, because it's um, about the, you know, the risk on, risk off, um, that basically found that FX can be a more efficient um, expression, market to express a view of risk on, risk off than the um, S&P in, the, uh, in, in play in the market. So... I wondered, um, I thought it would be great for you to share um, your methodology and your findings with the uh, with the audience, but also I thought maybe we could go into a little bit more detail around um, the uh, what it means for FX markets more generally. But let's kick off. I mean, so the headline is FX more efficient than SPX in playing the market. Can you take the listeners through you know, what you did as, as part of the research and what your key findings were? Sure. Um Markets in recent weeks have given us some some very great natural experiments because of the uh, volatility that we've seen, both with respect to uh, markets selling off and and you know more recently markets bouncing back. So what we did was we we took you know two very well defined episodes um, of the S and P moving, and we defined it by you know when the the S and P hit its peak and when it had a precipitous drop. And ask the question, how much did the S&P move relative to um, implied volatility, implied one-month S&P volatility over that period? Then we looked at currencies and said, um, which currencies, or were there any currencies that moved or as much or more? And you know, the question isn't whether you got it right or wrong. The question is, say you knew or felt that the markets were going to sell off relative to what the market expectation of volatility, which would have given you a bigger bang for the buck. And it turned out that uh, on the downside, when risk was selling off, um, just about any currency would have done better for you. On the upside, the there were there was a subset of currencies that did as well or almost as well. And the currencies that we found um, were Malaysian ringgit, sterling knock, and Singapore dollar Aussie cad. So, you know, 
it, it was actually interesting on a number of fronts. One is we didn't know what we would find when we went into this. And the fact that there was this consistency surprised us. And by and large, it's actually been the case since we published this uh, about a week ago that the same, um, what we call relative efficiency, seems to have held in the market. Um, the other, and, and this is a longer-term question that was dogging FX markets, was, you know, basically, is this the end of FX? Is has FX volatility so disappeared that it's lost any kind of usefulness as a macro tool. And what this told us is certainly that that wasn't yet the case, that the, I mean, uh, there was a good way of playing these macro views. Yeah. And, it, and it's interesting that you say that you know, even since the end of the second period of your experiment, when markets have calmed down to a degree, they're still – there's still enough out there to hurt people, but markets have calmed down to a degree that the same still holds true. Well, the reason is that um, um, S&P volatility has been stuck in, in the mid-40s, whereas FX volatility has been, um, you know, in some of the currencies that we've been looking at, Malaysia, Singapore dollar, you're talking about uh, five or six uh, other currencies, you're talking between 10 and 20. So to get the same bang for the buck, you, you need a much smaller move on the FX side. Um, and, and by and large, you've, you, that's what's happened. You've had currencies like Aussie moving almost as much as the S&P, but Aussie ball is less than half of that of the S&P. And um, even among our more stable currencies, Sing dollar, uh, you know, Malaysia ringgit, those moves have been uh, you know, relatively pronounced. So, um, they've been close to, if not, you know, beyond what the S and P was doing. Now, I mean, in some ways, you've kind of shot down one of my first thoughts when I read the piece, because um, obviously, Nokia, Aussie, and CAD are very much commodity currencies. Which I, is it fair to say that, generally speaking, you know, you'd expect commodity currencies to perform that way in a risk-on, risk-off scenario. Um, and second, I guess my second point is, what is it with Malay Singh and Sterling, which are definitely not commodity currencies? Yeah, the I, I guess in, in, in the first set of currencies, if we're looking at commodity currencies, um, keeping in mind that everything is measured relative to volatility, um, you would expect that the market would be properly pricing in the beta. But it looks, for whatever reason, um, Markets were very quick to ramp up implied volatility in uh, the S&P, but much less so in FX markets. And that gave you some opportunity to exploit the fact that the you know relative volatility was lower compared to the actual spot moves that were being made. Um, and I think in, in these cases, the you know commodities may have been a very good proxy for risk sentiment, because what we're really talking about is the market debating how intense the global demand shock would be um, and showing up to some degree in oil, showing up in, in other commodity prices. And so in, in terms of actually capturing the market zeitgeist, it's possible that you know, commodity currencies were actually efficient in doing that because they, they really reflected the, the factors that the market was focusing on over the medium term. And, and I guess going, you know, when we looked at Malaysian ringgit and Sing dollar, um, normally these are, you know, very tightly controlled currencies or they're, they move in, in, you know, 
quite narrow ranges. Um, but I think that the, again, the demand shock, these are open economies, the demand shock relative, um, you know, even to the, you know, normal currency moves was so intense that they, they were sort of capturing the fact that markets were getting extremely pessimistic very quickly. Um, and then with Fed policy moves and global policy moves, they, they saw more light at the end of the tunnel. So they bounced, they bounced back relatively quickly. Hmm. And I guess Sterling is just in the middle of a maelstrom of multiple storms, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, Sterling on the upside, I mean, you have the combination of Brexit and, um, you know, its exposure to Europe and coronavirus. And it it, it just seems to be capturing the, um, you know, the sentiment there. And certainly the, the um, over the last couple of days or, or week or so, the, the fact that the prime minister, um, you know, caught the disease was seemed to be in fairly serious conditions, just exacerbated the sterling move. Hmm. So in terms of like looking at this in a, in a bigger picture, um, if we can accept that equity markets are unlikely to resume the roller coaster, sorry, the, um, the steamroller path higher, that they have they've exhibited most of the last two or three years. Um, what does this mean for FX as an investment vehicle? Do you, do you think this is the type of evidence that can convince investors that, you know, actually, I mean, if you look at it on a risk return basis, a risk adjusted basis, as well as absolute basis, this is one of the reasons why you should be considering FX? We think that's the case. And, and, and you know, we, we were a bit surprised that it came through so clearly in our results. Mm-hmm. I think that um, markets were probably focused on de-risking in, in the first part of this episode when, when markets were selling off. Um, yeah. So, you know, the question of which asset class, it was every asset class that was getting sold. I, I think now that things have calmed down a little bit, we may see more examination and, and asking, you know, and re-asking the question that we did, examining examining it in different ways and saying, if I have a macro view, um, what is the best way of expressing it? And, and I should say that we, we, we chose a format that actually flattered um, the S&P because we defined our periods by uh, the periods in which the S&P fell the most sharply and which it rose the most sharply. And that, you know, in a sense, gives the advantage to the S&P and the fact that FX um, was in the game, and in some, you know, some currencies even outperformed. Um, it was it was very surprising to us. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I mean, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but obviously, yeah. I mean, that's so. In other words, if we look at this in across a longer period of time, there's a, probably a good chance that the numbers will be even more flattering to FX. Is that a fair observation? Um, I think so. Yes. I, I, or if we, if we, if we had a, an abstract measure of risk on and risk off, one that wasn't determined either by the FX market or by the equity market, um, this suggests that the results would actually be more positive for FX than even the ones that we reported. Interesting. Do you, one other thing that struck me about it as well. I mean. If we look at the hedging community, you know, in terms of you know the corporates and maybe certain institutional investors not looking to 
express a view as such. I mean, is this sort of research valuable for a hedger in terms of determining their policy, assuming they've got some degree of freedom around how and when they hedge and if they can take advantage of certain conditions? It probably is of some some use to them. I, I, I think you know, very few corporate hedgers would think of uh, the S&P as being the standard that they apply. But I, yeah. I think in terms in terms of looking at at exposures and looking at ways of um, maybe mitigating exposure, uh, I, I think it would be helpful. Uh, one other thing I think that's different is, is that it, it, you know if you're a corporate, the, the question you should be asking is um, what scenario will do me the most damage? It's, it's not it's not enough to, to sort yeah. of say look if Aussie goes down. Um, am I hurt or helped? But it's more a question of what state of the world will Aussie go down precipitously? What does it mean for the rest of my business? And what FX hedging strategy should I pursue contingent on the exposure, you know, my, my global corporate exposure rather than just the FX exposure? Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess, I mean, I guess what I, what, what I was thinking in terms of was like, for instance, you know, if a corporate treasury is exposed to a currency that's going to be hitting risk off, if they can if they can look at this and identify what happens to currencies in a risk off scenario, then they may be able to actually advance the hedging program in before they go risk on. Well, they, like, they could I, do I, that. I, I guess it, what I'm asking is like, and it might be uh, just as an early warning signal that if they have certain exposures, um, that. The, Certain currencies may move farther in in the event of an up or yeah. down shock, and then they have to decide whether they want to wear that exposure or whether they want to reduce it, you know, because of that potential for volatility. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, yes, I mean, I think it's. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of people. Hopefully, will now be um, drawn to the research. Will be providing a link to the research on the write-up for this. Stephen, thank you very much for joining in the thick of it. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Be well. And um, we'll be back with another podcast um, next week. Thanks very much for listening.